Scott McGowan, and this is Point Blank, where we close in on the ideas and stories that shape PLNU. Point Blank is sponsored by the PLNU Associated Student Body. So if you are a current student, the show is brought to you by you. Before we get into our theme today, I want to make an appeal to you to stick around. I understand there are so many heavy things in the world right now, and you might be thinking, really, Scott, we're going to talk about death and grief right now? And I do hear that. But what we are aiming for in this episode is actually to confront deeper truths about death and loss so that we can live more resiliently and fully in a life that will someday end. In other words, this is an episode about hope. And so if you need some hope right now, listen on. As we are living in the midst of a pandemic, we seem to be confronted constantly with mortality and grief. Yet there's a sense that for all our technology and supposed cultural progress, we are woefully unprepared to confront death. There's a sense we as a society once knew how to deal more resiliently with loss, but somewhere along the way we gave up or simply forgot. In that haze, we may think of our studies of all our forebear civilizations and remember elaborate funeral ceremonies, bodies lying in state or on pyres for days, and being honored in burial sites with fine possessions. There was some time long ago when our ancestors would follow traditional mourning rituals that we thought were silly when we learned about them sackcloth, ashes, kissing a loved one's dead body, speaking to it, wailing for days on end. But now we are faced with death as a daily news figure, a benumbing, desensitizing, bewildering phenomenon that is at the same time seemingly distant and incredibly intimate. Yet stripped of tradition and ritual, we notice we actually have no good way left to deal with it. And the terror and anxiety can be overwhelming. How did we end up here? Well, the full answer must be long and complicated, but a recent article in The Economist sheds light on how events 100 years ago completely reshaped how Western civilization and many others deal with death and continue to today. And it also involves a pandemic. At the opening of the 20th century, Western culture still followed established grief traditions that were intimate. People tended to die younger, Bodies were received by families, lovingly washed, dressed, and preserved, and would lie in state in a family's front room for several days. Friends, family, and neighbors, children included, would come from all around to pay their respects, remember the deceased, and cry long together with the body. It was intimate and prolonged, but it treated death in a way that people firmly experienced it as a hard but natural part of life. The idea of a separate funeral home was bizarre. Then the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920 overlapped with the end of World War I, and the death toll was incalculable. There was no way to attend all the funerals, and society became overwhelmed with grief, suffering from what could be called loss fatigue. This is how the entire industry of mortuaries and funeral homes exploded, to help ease the burden of an especially overwhelming suffering. And then, we just kept doing it. Several generations later, we have grown up in a society that hardly acknowledges death. When we do, it's typically sanitized and distant. We don't do intimate funerals anymore that provide wide open space to truly grieve such a heavy and ultimate loss. Instead, we offer celebrations of life or memorials and keep the most heavy grief in private places. It would be socially awkward to outwardly grieve for the many months or even years it takes to truly come to grips with the loss of a loved one. Yet losses are now back in view. Our own campus has experienced so many of these losses in the past year, and we are ourselves confronted with this unpreparedness to grieve. But there is another way, and it's one worth considering. 
Here to talk today about mortality, grief, and the emergence of hospice is PLNU alumna, Wendy Kessler. Wendy graduated PLNU in 1994 with a degree in sociology and an emphasis in social work. She married her PLNU stats tutor, Ryan, also class of 94. She received her master's in social work from SDSU right before her first son was born. She dedicated the next 20 years of her life to raising her three sons in Point Loma, who are now 23, 20, and 16. For the last 10 years of that time, Wendy and Ryan hosted a weekly dinner for recent PLNU grads, helping them navigate real life after Loma. They've been recognized with several awards from PLNU for this transformative work. In 2017, Wendy started her social work career as a bereavement coordinator at Sonata Hospice. She provides grief support to loved ones of patients after patients have died. Her daily work immerses her in mourning, memory, mortality, and how we as Americans and Christians deal with it. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah. Um, so to start, uh, we always like to hear your PLNU story. How did you come to this campus? I came to PLNU as a transfer student. I was a sophomore in 1991. Um, I did not. I grew up in a very loving, warm home, but not a Christian or faith-based home. Mm-hmm. Um, church was not a part of my growing up experience. I um, came to faith, came to church through um, my best friend at the time, who actually is still one of my best friends today. And um, she invited me to her church, which was New Hall Church of the Nazarene, which is how I got connected to youth group and eventually to PLNU and to everything else that kind of set a foundation for a life that I really am grateful for. Very cool. And you, yeah, you married a PLNU alum as well, and you guys loved it here so much you stuck around. Yes, it's true. I saw Dr. Crow once and with my kids on campus and told him he was partially responsible for <laughs> my three children because he recommended I get a tutor when I was in stats and okay. the rest is history. And I think Crow is, I, I thought I heard something that this might be his last year or he just retired, something like that. So, um, yeah, a lot of bridges to your experience here. Um, so your work right now in hospice care is um, you're, you are experiencing and seeing a whole, when you go to work, a whole different world from what so many of us are experiencing in our daily work or our daily school. Um, first off, I think a lot of our students or our listeners might not even be really familiar with what hospice is. They've heard the term. Uh, no, it has maybe something to do with patient care, mm-hmm. but, um, maybe if you could just go into what, what hospice is, how did it start? Um, and how does it, how does it differ from what we might think of as like mainstream healthcare in America? Sure. I, um, I didn't know very much about hospice before I started doing this work and have become such a passionate advocate of the value of hospice care and um, what it offers and how it differs from mainstream health care. Um, I think mainstream health care can learn a lot from hospice mm. when hospice is seen as kind of this fringe of health care. Um, it is more of a holistic practice of health care that really recognizes people um, as opposed to treating disease. So the hospice model is um, 
really hospices began in medieval times. Um, they were homes that were set up along the road where mm-hmm. travelers um, could stop and receive um, care, um, rest, um, where they could be taken care of if they were sick or tired and then sent along on their journey. So not necessarily directly having to do with end of life. No, originally no. In medieval times, the the word hospice originates from the word hospitality, okay. which was a place of rest for weary travelers. Was okay. um, the origins of hospice, and so um, in nineteen in the nineteen forties, Cecily Saunders, who is the founder of the modern hospice movement, she grew up in a wealthy family in England. Um, went to Oxford, became a um, World War II nurse in London, um, ended up becoming injured um, through that work, and then became a medical social worker. Hmm. Became so passionate about the lack of care and attention and science being um, just being considered to help people at end of life. Um, to die well, to to die with dignity, to die with managed pain, um, that she became really passionate and began doing research on pain interventions for people at end of life. Um, Someone told her that if you really want to be taken seriously and and make big changes in the healthcare system, you need to be a doctor. And so Cecilia Saunders in her 30s in the 1950s went to medical school and became a doctor and began this whole movement of what is now now the modern day hospice. So she is just one of my heroes, mm-hmm. um, a, a woman I admire so much. I try to read everything she's written that I can get my hands on. Um, so she began receiving donations as she went around talking about her vision for hospice. And she developed the model that modern hospice, that my hospice, where I work, um, practice today. And I don't, the company I work for is an amazing hospice company. Um, but they, um, it's not a Christian company. It's mm-hmm. a secular company. And yet modern hospice, the movement recognizes that we are all, we're not just bodies, um, that in order to truly manage pain, it's not just physical pain, it's there needs to be an, a management of um, emotional and spiritual pain as well. So hospices provide chaplaincy or spiritual counselors um, are offered to all of their patients, are part of every patient's care team, um, regardless of a person's faith or faith traditions. Um, and just a recognition that a, a lot of people, whether they um, are Christians or not, um, are have a, an awareness and a connection to spirituality or to just the universal connection we all share. And that um, reconciling peace at end of life with spirituality and faith is a huge need for people. And hospices, um, again, whether they are a faith-based company or, or a secular company, recognize the need for that. That if the goals of hospice are provide, helping um, patients achieve peace at end of life, dying with dignity, and managing pain. Hmm. So in order to do that, you have to treat the whole person, which is a person's, you know, there's a nurse on every hospice case management team, um, as well as um, a health aide, a spiritual counselor, a medical social worker, and our the company I work for offers music therapy as well. 
and it's to in order to have a plan and it's also patient-centered care so the patient drives the goals hmm. that they have for their health management okay and what is that what does that look like what do you mean they they drive the goals so rather, again, rather than treating the disease, you're treating the person. And a person is more than just their body. Mm. And so a patient decides what their goals are, what they want life, what they would like to achieve, what they need to resolve, what they want their final days, um, what their, their end of life process, what they want that to look like, what matters to them, what's important to them. And so it's not a doctor setting a care plan. It's the, it's all of those people involved in the patient's care, the nurse, the social worker, the chaplain, the music therapist are talking with a patient and their family, assessing what the goals are at end of life, and then creating a plan that helps a patient achieve those goals. Hmm. Um, another really unique thing about hospice within healthcare is the inclusion of the family or patient significant loved ones into the healthcare plan and the end of life process. Because if a goal is helping a patient achieve peace at end of life and to manage pain, whether pain is physical pain, spiritual pain, emotional, emotional pain, pain yeah. it, in addition to the whole person, it's the whole system within that person's life. Um, the key people, it, um, having peace with the process, um, education being provided. A lot of times, you know, a patient reaches a point where they sometimes are come to peace with end of life before their family does. Hmm. And then part of the work of the hospice team is educating the family so that they can, um, you know, come to a place where they're able to offer permission for a loved one to go and to die and to pass. Because a lot of people hold on for their family, even when they feel prepared and ready to transition. Um, and do you think, I mean, you mentioned this is, you know, you're, you're kind of outlining some of the ways that this is different from mainstream health care. You talk about managing disease. And so is it that you're seeing like these, the families are more, maybe more habituated to or used to this idea that like you manage the disease and you try to keep the person alive as long as possible but the patient now being in this a little bit different culture and environment of hospice is actually starting to follow a different path. Is that, is that how you see that? Why you see there's that difference between what the families are trying to do and what the patient's goals are? Right, yes, certainly. And um, our modern healthcare system is set up to heal and to fix and to cure. And when that is no longer possible for a patient, um, for many people within healthcare um, and families as well, patients and families as well, that's seen as failure. It's seen as, rather than seeing the end of life process as the natural course of life, it's seen as failure and our healthcare system and our culture, our American culture, do not do well with failure and accepting failure. And so there is this um, push to fight is how so many of us are conditioned, how um, our healthcare system is conditioned, and when, um, when a disease, the natural course of a disease brings a person to end of life, then our healthcare system and so many medical providers just don't know what to do with that. Families don't know how to, um, how to support a loved one 
through end of life when fighting is no longer the goal. And Mm. that's where hospice comes in, providing support, providing education, providing resources to help patients and families with that transition. That death is not failure, death is the natural course of life. And, um, you know, our when, when I go to work every day, where I work is actually a really joyful place with mm. really joyful people. <laughs> yeah. um, and we joke sometimes that we really, not even totally joking, but that we should start a podcast just so people can hear um, our staff talk and laugh and joke, as well as be passionate and share um, on these topics that we feel so, um, um, that we just think are so applicable to, to everyone. Just to be clear, you're, this isn't to say that hospice is like we stop doing medical care completely and then just like, you know, let this so that we can have this like natural, quote unquote, natural process. And there's still, it's really your, your, it sound, what it sounds like is you're doing, um, you're doing almost like this step forward where it's, yes, we, we continue to treat using modern sci- science mm-hmm. uh, in terms of we're, we're manage, helping manage pain and the process mm-hmm. um, while then reclaiming some of these, um, these uh, maybe healthier ways of understanding or dealing with death even in a modern age. So it's like this potential actual step forward rather than just trying to go back to do something that maybe used to be done. Right. Absolutely. And hospice is the, the focus is not death every day. I think mm. that's what people think that the, the work of hospice providers, that it's always about death when the reality is it really is about life and it's about helping a patient live as well as they can through their final days. Mm. And, um, and, and how can we help them do that? How can we help their family and loved ones do that? So it's not so much that death is driving our work as how do we live well and how do we live well to our final days? That really mm. is the heart of, of the work of hospice. So rather than denying that this person is dying, rather than denying as a patient that I'm dying or as a family, my loved one's dying. It's or, ex- or admitting to failure when it, they do pass. Exactly. Or seeing that as failure, like we're giving up. If, if we stop fighting, then we're giving up. And that's not, there's, there's so much more, um, that we can be doing in our care for people at end of life in managing pain in helping people with restoration. If it's restoration to family or restoration to God, or again, they set those goals that we don't come in and say, this is what you need to do for peace at end of life. We're our, our team of um, clinicians is asking them, what do you need at end of life hmm. um, to feel peace? And then they're helping them achieve those goals, whether that's pain management, whether it's family restoration, whether it's having a plan for themselves or their family um, after they're gone. Hmm. Those are the things that um, it, it's just, it's being able to hold all the parts of life together and not just a segment of it. Hmm. And to, um, again, not giving up, but living well and living well till the final days. And what does that look like? And hospice can help people to achieve that. So by the time, by the time you're actually interacting with a given patient, they've already passed usually, right? I mean, like as far as your caseload, you, you're receiving the family after a patient has passed in your particular, your particular area. Of course you, 
you know, are in a facility then, and you know, that's, that's caring for, for all these patients. But so maybe I'm kind of curious, how does that, how do you think that differs? I mean, by the time you have a family that you are interacting with after a patient has passed and they're now fully in this, this mm-hmm. grief, this grief period. Um, do you notice like how, how is that different from maybe how you experience or see people grieving when they aren't going through that kind of process or have lost someone who just went through, you know, the healthcare system and passed and it's mm-hmm. that failure. I mean, do you notice a, a difference there? What does that look like? Um, well, one of the, so my role at Sonata as a bereavement coordinator is I provide support to fam, patients, families, and loved ones after our patients die. Okay. So I have very little contact with patients. Um, on rare occasions, I do. But typically, the medical social worker, the music therapist, the, the chaplains, they're providing the grief support to the patient at end of life and to the, to the family while the patient's on service. And then I come in um, to provide ongoing support to the family after the patient passes. So I oversee a 13-month bereavement program that we're continue, continually growing and developing. And Wait, 13 months? 13 months. Okay. So my role is to provide 13 months of grief. We have a program that offers grief support for 13 months after the patient passes. And the wow. reason for 13 months is because yeah. the anniversary can be really hard for families. Um, Even if they've really moved along in their grieving process, the anniversary can be challenging for people. So we don't ever want to um, discharge people from our bereavement program before they reach that anniversary mark. Yeah. Um, So that that seems even itself. I mean, that's my my experience with um, having, you know, experiencing loss or seeing it is the grief period kind of lasts through the whatever sort of ceremony, whether it's a a celebration of life or a funeral or whatever that is some number of weeks after. And then perhaps like some friends and family might continue to be alongside Mm -hmm. those that have lost for maybe a a short period of time, but it's not 13 months. Right. (laughs) That's a huge difference. Yeah. Right. And that's another reason why, um, it extends all those months because, you know, a lot of times people have support initially um, when a loved one dies, but grief lasts a lot longer than, you know, bereavement from work or really what society, our, our personal grief almost always lasts longer than how long society thinks it should mm-hmm. last. Mm-hmm. And something that I talk about a lot with, um, the families that reach out to me for support and and patient loved ones is that, um, you know, grief of a a significant loss, that grief never ends. It really doesn't. You know, we want to hear that you can go through the five stages of grief and then you're healed and you're well again and you move on. And um, one thing that I've... That's a nice nice story. It is a nice story and it just ties into our culture's desire to fix. Mm. Um, We want easy, quick fixes. We want to be able to make ourselves well and we want to be able to move on and we want to be able to kind of stay in this positive, strong space all the time. And, um, and we just don't deal well with grief, our own grief or other people's grief. And the reality is the grief process of a significant loss, that pain is, it never totally goes away. It, there's healing that comes and there's peace that comes with time. But there will always be moments of intense longing um, and missing of a significant 
loved one who's died. And we don't allow, we don't make space for that well enough in our culture. And, um, you know, a lot of the suffering that comes from our grief really is connected more to the ways we try to keep it out Mm. um, than than letting it in. Yeah. And, you know, grief is, grief is, is how we learn how to hold joy and sorrow at the same time. Most of us learn that Mm. through suffering. Most of us learn that through the, the, the situations that happen in our life that grieve us, whether it's losing um, a dream or an opportunity or losing a person um, or a loved one. It's what the grief, the grief process is not moving on from grief from our sadness, it's moving forward with it. It's learning, the grief process teaches us how to move forward with the significant loss in our lives, mm-hmm. how to, Um, continue to have meaning in our lives, how to continue to have purpose in our lives. Um, Losing a significant loved one is a, it's not, grief is not just the pain of loss. It's, we have to reorient ourselves to the world Hmm. of who am I now that I'm not this person's spouse or this person's child or parent, or those are big process, a process of, of re-identification. Yeah. Um, there's a void there. There's some sort of void. There's a space that's just all of a sudden there. Yes. And that's, um, something I heard that has been so helpful to me is that grief is not like an il- an illness that you hmm. heal from or a bone that's mended and broken. Yeah. I mean, that's broken and then mended. Grief is really an amputation and it's, it's losing a part of ourselves that, that never is really going to come back, but we adapt. Hmm. Like people adapt after an amputation and we adapt to the world after we've lost a significant person but it, it never goes quite back to being the same. Sure. And, you know, grief and grief work is just being able to hold that space with people. And, you know, my work, grief is not something that can be fixed. Grief is something that is witnessed. Wow. Okay. And a lot of my work is witnessing people's grief and listening, holding that space with them. Um not trying to push them along faster than they want to move in their grief journey, but to hear their story, you know, Mm -hmm. so much about processing grief is, is storytelling. And, and people ask me, how can you do your job? And isn't it so sad? And, um, it must be hard to do that every day. And there are days that feel really hard and heavy, of course, but most days I leave work feeling like I heard some of the most amazing stories today about amazing people and what people do with their lives and relationships that are so, um, just such a wonderful testimony of love and how love changes us. And, you know, grief so often comes from, it's what spills out when love is broken and Mm. love is broken by death and grief spills out from that, but the love is still there. And I get to hear, I I so often leave work feeling inspired. Yeah. So that's, I think that's really hopeful, um, to, to, for us to consider that the, the period after, um, 
after a loss where we're grieving is actually this period where we get to, yeah, we get to experience joy in our suffering and, and, um, and, and as we heal from that amputation that we actually are then developing some sort of like you're, you're growing or developing some sort of new limb or new, new way to, to engage the world now that you don't have that person with you anymore. What, what would you say are some hallmarks of where you see, uh, grief? What are some hallmarks of like healthy ways of grieving and versus maybe some ways that you, you've seen that are like not, not healthy or helpful? I think it's really helpful to think of our emotions, um, not focusing on the emoting of emotions, but on the motion of emotions Hmm. and emotions need motion is, is something I share often with families that I'm and, and loved ones I'm talking with that again, it's when we try to stop the flow of emotions through us, the, the sad, dark, difficult suffering emotions that none of us, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this and um, that this is not a painful, difficult process to go through the journey of grief. It is, it's, um, but it, when we allow ourselves to feel the fullness of our emotions, we have to trust the process that emotions move through us. Hmm. They get, we get stuck in an emotion when we try to keep it out and not feel it. it. It's in the feeling of an emotion that it moves through us and we're not paralyzed by it or stuck in that place. Um, I'm reading a book right now on um, called Healing from the Dark Emotions um, that, you know, the author talks about and it's, you know, based on research and how, um, you know, we have labeled emotions as good or bad. We have, and I think especially in the church, we really, you know, that we see light and goodness and righteousness and God and Jesus um, and the right path, that's all in the light and evil and, um, you know, being off the right path and the absence of God and all of that is in the dark. Um, but the reality is God is in all of those places. And, um, and he's, he's present in both the light and the dark. And just because we're in the dark doesn't mean we've done something wrong that's, that's led us there or why we're in this place of, of darkness and suffering. And um, when we can feel those emotions that come with that, with those dark places, we really, we're opening ourselves up to experiencing the fullness of God that we actually don't experience if we're trying to live our whole lives, never grasping onto the light. Yeah, just gra- exactly, just grasping onto the light. And um, again, emotions. Going back to the book, emotions are neither good nor bad. They're not negative or positive. They're teachers. Are all emotions teach us what we need to know about ourselves, about our experience, about what's happening to us? They're guides on what we need and where we need to go. And there's something really powerful in feeling our own emotions. And David Kessler, who I'm not related to at all, um, is one of, you know, just a a well-known, like internationally known leader on grief, um, grief work and education. Um, And he says that, that we are the first generation that has feelings about our feelings. Okay. So when we feel something, 
we think about that feeling and we kind of hold it out in front of us and look at it and decide, do I deserve to have this feeling? Is this the appropriate feeling? Let me compare myself to other people and decide and other situations and, and decide whether or not I think it's appropriate for me to have this feeling. And then we kind of decide what degree do I get to have this feeling to as well. Mm. Um, and that's, that's a draining process, a weary making process for us that rather than having feelings about our feelings to just have our feelings, just own our feelings, just, and it's okay to have bad feelings and hard feelings and dark feelings. And to, again, just when we allow those feelings in, when we give them motion, emotions need motion, and then they move through us. And we don't always do a good job of trusting that process, but that is the process that leads to transformation. And that's also a a gift that grief offers us. But it sounds like it's something that has to be practiced. Like it's something that we, we practice a little bit and then maybe get a little better at, and then it becomes a bit more natural, and then we practice it more. Is that kind of how you've seen seen people undo their feeling about feelings and instead just feel their feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I, you know, I, that is so well stated. And this is something that I share with people that I'm providing ongoing grief counseling support to. Um, also is that it is important to take a break from grief. Um, grief, strengthens us in so many ways when we're willing to wrestle with it and engage in it. We strengthen and grow through the grief process and the process of transformation. But just like exercising our bodies, we can't just exercise every day all day long. You can't just lift weights or run all day. You have to at some point take a break and allow muscles and our bodies to to heal and to rest, to be able to to keep strengthening our bodies and our hearts and minds and souls, I, I think work the same way. Yeah. And it sounds like we, from what I'm hearing also, this isn't a, this isn't an exercise where a spotter is optional. Like you've got to have at least one, if not several spotters when you're exercising this. Is that, am I hearing that right? Absolutely. This is not a, so, this is not a solo project. No, the you're grief journey, I, I think, and again, nobody can fix grief for us, but they can accompany us. Um, grief is a very isolating experience um, in ideal situations. So people experiencing grief in a pandemic where we literally are physically isolated from one another, the intensity of that grief of the grieving process for people right now um, is, you know, unprecedented is the word that is, you know, overused right now that it's kind of losing its meaning and yet it's still true Um, that we really do need each other um, through the grieving process. Again, just to witness, um, witness the pain, witness the journey, witness the loss, but also to hear the stories and to honor and celebrate um, that a life matters. We all need to know that the life of our loved one who has died matters. Yeah. And that is another gift that we offer each other and why, um, again, just having people to travel with us on the grief journey is so important. Yeah, and, and I think that requires a little bit, that's not so common that we think it's good for us to ask someone to do that or for us to offer that even there's like a, because it's not the cultural norm for me to, to offer my help sometimes feels like, Oh, well that's just gonna, I don't want to bother them because they're dealing with their grief. Like I don't want to be a burden to them by forcing myself on them or vice versa. 
but now you have this disconnect. Um, and so what I'm hearing is like a, an encouragement to like, no, actually maybe it's even hard to make that connection at first, but like do that, do like seek that yourself if you are in a moment of grief or loss and offer that if you're, if you're not in your, but you want, you genuinely want to, to be a, a, co-journeyer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. People want to be asked about their loved one who's died. They mm. want to hear their name, the, the name of the loved one who's died. They want to hear that name spoken out loud. They mm. want stories to be heard and to be shared and for values to be like the connection of values to be lived out. And, um, you know, grief is really an opportunity and death is an opportunity to um, gather together and create this bookend that kind of is a counter is a is the closure closure I don't like to use the word closure um, with grief but to offer this death is an opportunity to offer this bookend to birth where when a life comes into this world family and friends gather and they celebrate a life. They celebrate a life that's come into the world and everything that it means to this world and all the ways that life matters and has value. We acknowledge all of that at birth and grief is an opportunity to gather with someone and kind of, and, and recreate this same experience hmm. um, at the end of someone's life that, that just becomes this beautiful bookend of celebrating a life that matters and a life that has value. Mm-hmm. And when there is is um, it really increases the, the depth and the sorrow um, of someone's pain and suffering when they lose a loved one if, if there is an opportunity to do that yeah if they're just isolated sure so you have you have three wonderful sons um, and they kind of span so 16 20 23 they kind of mm-hmm span the ages of who we have here at Point Loma, um, as students, uh, when you think of your sons and how they, they are maybe learning these things along with you or how, how are, how young people, college age students are, um, in this world, like what, is there anything in particular you think like this is, th- these are things that are helpful for, for, for young people at that age to be thinking about when it comes to, to grief they might be experiencing at a much younger age, maybe than than they would have in a different time? Um, yeah, well, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind too, when, when I think about, um, just one challenge I know talking with 20 somethings who have lost a patient on our service is there's this added challenge of things that are left unsaid Hmm. and having to make peace with that. Um, you know, we just, we always think we have more time. And I think that's been one of the most fascinating things I've learned and seen through this work in hospice is whether we think we have more years or months or days or hours, people just think there's, there's still a little bit more time. And that moment of death is shocking, um, for most loved ones, even when someone's on hospice, um, and so I think the the younger we are, um, for all of us on our journey, the um, just again just that that thought that we have more time, and the things that feel left unsaid, and having to 
just again, just make peace with that. Um, you know, there, there's a organization called the dinner party.org okay. that used to be in person because of COVID it's over zoom, but okay. they create dinner parties. They organize dinner parties for 20 and 30 somethings who have lost a significant loved one because so many support groups, um, just our older people yeah. and older people in my, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s and older, you know, that ages that seem so much older for a 20 or, or 30 year old coming, their experience is just so different and, and similar in many ways, but different in, in other ways too. And so, um, and your peers haven't experienced as much significant loss, um, at that age, sure. typically to walk through it with you. And so it can be hard to find people that really can connect and um, empathize from a place of of knowing because they've experienced it too. And so, again, dinnerparty.org, they organize um, meals for 20s and 30-somethings to gather around a table and just to share their stories and offer support to each other Mm -hmm. um, who have lost a loved one to death. So you you mentioned a little bit about the um, the emotions and how we as Christians deal with you know trying to stay away from darkness and only stay in the light. But are there any other? I mean, if you're working in an I don't know, maybe not interfaith but secular institution that embraces you know the the full range of faith traditions, whatever might be appropriate to that person, um, what have you noticed about how? how Christians grieve and what would you, is there anything in particular you would say to, to Christian audience about how they can maybe, how maybe they're, they can think about their faith in a way that's a little more healthy towards this. That's a big question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think not avoiding grief and not like seeing the strength in grief and trusting in the process of transformation that comes through the grieving process. And um, something that I, you know, share with families too when, when we're talking is, you know, this journey that I'm talking about, again, I don't want to sugarcoat it and yeah. make it sound easier than it is either because it's, it's, it is marked by pain. Um, but when we talk about transformation, it's, you know, like the butterfly that goes into a cocoon. I mean, the, the caterpillar that goes into a cocoon and transforms into this amazing butterfly. But before it's a butterfly, it becomes, it dissolves really yeah. a caterpillar dissolves into a pile of mush yeah. and then the pile and of mush, um, grows recreates itself into a butterfly. And that really is more what this, you know, talking about this grief process. Um, again, I just think sometimes as Christians, we have an assumption that if I'm practicing faith in the right way, if I'm praying the right prayers and listening to the right speakers mm-hmm. and um, maturing in the right ways, and I the can- the Lord's just gonna protect me from all this God pain. God will protect me and I can avoid all this suffering And if I'm going through suffering or if I go through more than maybe I'll have one testing time, but if I have more than one testing time, then I'm doing something wrong and I'm not practicing faith in the right way or God's not being faithful to me. And it, it, it's a lie or not true. 
Yeah. When the reality is, you know, Jesus promises us that there'll be suffering and but he's present in the suffering right. and he's present with us in the suffering and the suffering is not the result you know of someone doing something wrong and a lot of times even within faith traditions we we have this assumption that um if I'm suffering, someone's done something wrong, me or someone right, else. Right. And so we either want to shame ourselves or we want to blame other people. And that pain gets directed, you know, inward is shame, outward is blame. And neither, um, both of those paths lead to false narratives and are rooted in false narratives. Because the reality is everybody can be doing the best they can, ourselves, our loved ones, um, and really hard, painful things happen. Um, and God's there and he's present in that. And it's, it's not the result of failure that we're in this dark place. It's just life is going to lead us to those places. And grief is how we learn how to hold joy and sorrow at the same time. I mean, it's certainly embedded in our Christian narrative that death came into the world because of man's failure. I mean, that is, that's this foundational place, but we as Christians then say, and then God came and is, and, and started things right with Jesus. And that we now live in this already, not yet of, yes, we, we still have to, um, experience the suffering and the pain of loss and death, that death is not the natural intended way that the Lord would like his world to work and that the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more death. But for the time being, we we are in exactly what you're saying, this already not yet, this in-between of suffering with joy, suffering with expectation, with hope, um, and that the spirit has been sent to, to comfort us mm-hmm. along the way. But that that the spirit comes through and and with us amongst us best when we, when we do it together. Right. Um, Grief, grief teaches us how to live in the both and as opposed to the either or because very little of life is either or it's almost all both. And it's joy and sorrow. It's, pain and hope. It's, it's all of these things. And and that's what I think Jesus models for us too, is how to live into all of these realities. And like, that is the abundant life. The abundant life is living a life of joy, purpose, meaning within a world that also has pain and hardship, um, that we're not defined or limited by those circumstances, but we can thrive and love God, others and self well through that. Yeah. Wendy, this has been incredibly helpful, and I'm I'm so hopeful that um, that some listeners out there are taking taking um, yeah some strength from this. So normally we we I, I hate that we have to wrap up, but um, we're coming towards the end of our time. But normally I do these rapid fire questions, and I think it would be probably more meaningful to our audience today if um, we could do a little bit of of story time. So there's a couple stories I want you to tell, and the first one is about. Um, uh, a culture that you've seen maybe having some, some rituals and traditions around how they deal with death and loss that you saw as being maybe a little more healthy, a little more helpful. Tell us about that. Um, so there's a nurse I work with, um, at Sonata from Uganda and we went to lunch one day and I asked her to tell me about what does grief look like, um, in Uganda, you know, when you were growing up, tell me, um, tell me about that. And so she talked about how, um, you know, grief is, is a part of life. 
um, in in her community and her in her culture growing up, and that when someone died, it was the that person's family. You know, if they didn't die at home, that would go get the body, um, bring that person's body into the family home, wash the body, dress the body. Um, often, the body would be placed on the dining room table, and then immediate family would spend time. Um, you know. With the body, being able, again, to say what needs to be said. Um, And then the extended family would be invited in once immediate family felt they'd had enough time. Extended family would come in and spend time with the body. Um, And then the neighbors and community would be invited to come in. And it was just this time of communal grieving, sharing the weight of grief together. Um, Acknowledging this doesn't just go away when we bury the body, like this continues and we're all in it together. Correct. Absolutely. And, um, and then someone, a, a family member would scrape bark off of a tree and that bark would be pressed into, until it became like rolled until it became thin gauze. Um, and it was called it, bark cloth and then that bark cloth is what the person's body would be wrapped in and then the family would take the person to like a fam a family burial plot and dig the hole dig a grave and and put the family member in there and, and bury the body and then um one of the most profound parts of that though is she's told me that the immediate family of the person who died they wear a piece of bark cloth somewhere on their person for a year and so my my friend from work she was taught as a young child by her mother if you see someone with bark cloth you go up and you tell them i'm so sorry for your loss Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, so people that are grieving a significant loss, they're not the ones trying to figure out how to talk about it or who to talk about it. It's the community comes around them and again, witnesses their grief, honors their grief that they, as opposed to Western culture where we can feel so isolated in our grieving process, mm-hmm. they're brought even further into like the circle of community support. Um, through that ongoing acknowledgement by people around them. Yeah. I don't know how we make that bar cloth, but that sure sounds helpful. Um, you also, you, you shared with me an amazing story about your best friend. I'm just going to summarize the first part of it and then let you talk about the last bit. Um, uh, so you can, you can share that part, but you have a best friend who you've had since you were very young. She was, she, it was, and continues to be incredibly close in your life. Really, it sounds like more like family almost. Um, and she mm-hmm. was an important part of you coming to your faith. Um, her father was the pastor of the church you were, you came to your faith in, um, that ended up leading you to coming to Point Loma, mm-hmm. uh, as a student and, and your whole life went from there. And it, it sounds like many, many times in your life where you, um, have had a chance to come alongside her and vice versa in um, incredibly mm-hmm. incredible um, spirit will add ways um, that uh, that have been transformative for you and for her but that she experienced a loss um, uh, recently mm-hmm. and that um, it was coincided with you coming into your work in hospice care and understanding that better so that you could then mm-hmm. walk through that with her in a, a little healthier way tell us about the if you would the end of that story if you're okay sharing um, yeah, um, you know, I it, it's amazing how my life and, and, and you know, 
one of my besties here, how our lives have been interwoven together. Um, and her, um, she had been married um, to a wonderful man for two years when he was diagnosed with cancer. And for a year, um, you know, surgeries and treatments seemed to be working. And then um, he seemed to be going into remission. And then their fourth year of marriage, his cancer came back. Um, and, you know, she texted me that they had brought in comfort care, palliative care, um, to help manage his pain so that he could go back to cancer treatments. And when I shared this with my manager at work um, and saying, you know, hey, I'm going to want to take some time off when when it when I can and go mm -hmm. and, and offer some support to her, because um, at this point we live in completely different states on other sides of the country. Um, and my manager, when I told her the diagnosis and the disease progression and, and some of the other factors, um, she very kindly said, um, he doesn't have months. He has days or weeks and you need to you go, go right now. You need yeah. to get on a plane and we'll cover you. And so I did that. I, you know, two days later, um, I was at her house 3,000 miles away, and, you know, um, again, we we share a friendship and um, a closeness that, you know, I walked in to their bedroom and just, you know, climbed into bed with her and, and her husband who was dying and, and spent the next 11 days there um, just being present with them and um, offering whatever support and guidance I could um, from my own experience with hospice. And, um, you know, he, he did die four days after I came home on Thanksgiving Day, and another friend had arrived to um, continue offering support. Um, but one of, you know, my, I, I'd been working in hospice for a year at that point, and what I was able to offer just from having a different perspective from hospice that he's dying and it's tragic and it's painful and there's lots of crying, but he's also still alive. And so he's not, he's still here with us. And mm -hmm. what can we do to keep living life with him? Even if he's days or weeks, um, from dying. And so one of the really hard things happening, there were many, but one is he um, has an amazing daughter who, um, from a prior marriage, who is a, at that time was a senior in college and was one month from graduating. She was a December grad and he really wanted to be at her graduation. They both really wanted that. He had raised her as a single dad from the time that she was 11 um, and but the reality was that he was not gonna make it to no her way graduation. He could travel and that no condition. way he could travel um, and so you know she and I were talking and texting too she you know was also in another state at college you know asking whether she should come home or not and, and I encouraged her to do so um, and again this is because of my experience in hospice and that death is not just something to avoid, it's something also, there comes a point where we acknowledge death and and find ways to meaningful live into that time as well. It's mm -hmm. not just to surrender. Like how do we keep meaningfully living into this time? 
And um, so I told her she had just gotten her cap and gown from the university, and I told her to bring it with her um, when she came home to see her dad. And then, um, you know, one of the greatest joys and privileges of my life is that I got to host a graduation party for her and her mm. dad. Mm. And um, it, it still makes me cry because it was painful, but it also was beautiful. And again, this is... This is where death teaches us how we hold both of those things at the same time and how, um, you know, she put on her cap and gown and she, um, I made dinner, I made a cake, we got Prosecco, um, her dad got to give her a toast mm-hmm. um, with her in her cap and gown. She got to take pictures with her dad in her cap and gown and hug her dad and, um, we hung her cap and gown um, in front of a window that um, her dad liked to look at, look out for those remaining days that he was still here um, with us on earth. And um, it's a moment and a memory that will be meaningful to her for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. And if all we had done was try to fight the fact he was dying until the end and not embrace the reality and and what could be done within those limits, um, she would have missed an opportunity to share a moment with her dad um, that can help to be a a comfort to him not being there at the actual ceremony. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's very personal. Um, and thank you for all of this. Uh, this entire hour has been incredibly helpful for me and I hope for our listeners, I believe for our listeners. And, and I think maybe the last piece just to leave everyone with is that, um, you know, Wendy works in this and, and amongst these things every day, obviously she is deeply connected to them. This, these aren't things that are arm's length for her. Um, and that she just talks about in this way that's, like she said, sugarcoating it or trying to make it sound like it's better than it is. Um, but I hope that you hear in her that there can be joy in suffering and there can be um, restoration even when things are hard. Uh, and so, Wendy, you are, you're a joyful person. And I think that comes through to everyone that knows you. Um, and we're so appreciative that you've shared that today, even on a topic that can be so hard. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. It really is a joy and an honor to be here. Thank you for letting me talk about this topic. Really important. We've all um, benefited from a career. Thank you.